Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're shining a spotlight on an often misunderstood and often overlooked eating disorder, binge eating disorder, often called BED. We're thrilled to have one of our own, Stacey Schulter-Pisano, joining us to explore this topic and talk about a really cool program that we're able to offer. Stacy is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Washington State and a certified eating disorder specialist for nearly two decades. Stacy has helped individuals and families affected by body dissatisfaction, disordered eating, and clinical eating disorders since 2014. Stacy has been the director of Family Programs South Sound location in Olympia, Washington. With this role, she oversees a multidisciplinary team of providers offering PHP, IOP, outpatient and FBT services. Stacy also developed and supervises the Emily programs and Veritas Collaboratives Care IOP, a virtual specialty program designed to support people overcoming binge eating, binge eating disorder. Welcome to piecemeal, Stacy. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, we're so excited to dive in and talk about this. So tell us first, start with uh, a little bit more about binge eating disorder. What is binge eating disorder? Who does it affect? How does it differ from more widely known eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia? Do you only struggle with binge eating if you have binge eating disorder? Are there other times that that shows up? Tell us all about binge eating. Oh, goodness. So many things. How much time do we have? (laughs) Um, I'll first say uh, binge eating disorder is it's a condition that is affecting more than two and a half million people in America. It's actually three times more prevalent than anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa combined. And what it is, is it's characterized by a pattern of binge eating, which is defined as an excessive quantity of food in a discrete period of time. So a quantity of food that's objectively large and a pattern of those episodes occurring. Um, But oftentimes the individual that's experiencing the binge episodes is feeling out of control. They might report a sense of almost dissociation during that period of time. And frequently the binge eating is paired with shame or there's a sense of secrecy about the eating. And so we we have these characteristics that show up. And we know that it affects people across the identity spectrums, meaning binge eating disorder just doesn't discriminate. So all ages, genders, socioeconomic statuses, belief systems, heritages, so on and so forth, right? It is like other eating disorders that it's a biological brain-based condition that's influenced by environmental and psychological factors. And I kind of call that this complex interplay because there's so many different elements that can contribute to that. And like with other eating disorders, I do like to point out that the behaviors or the quote unquote symptoms oftentimes do serve an adaptive response or an adaptive function, meaning that the individual develops these behaviors naturally in response to a combination of biological or psychological or environmental activators. That was a good big mouthful of stuff. It, it, that was a lot of words. Thank it was you. a lot of words. <laughs> Fantastic. I think it's it really underscores, I think, the complexity of binge eating and binge eating disorder that gets oversimplified by the by society, by culture, to be dismissed as like simple overeating or a willpower thing, or if somebody could just do something right with their eating, that sort of thing. 
and and other factors. How does how does that make it challenging for people who struggle with this illness get the help and the support they need? Right, absolutely. And I think what you just said is super relevant because I think in our culture, people urge to take personal responsibility for their relationship with food. And in the case of binge or overeating, many people believe that stopping is a matter of willpower or quote unquote, getting control of their eating. And for some, they believe that one of the 33,000 diets out there will be the answer. Others believe that eliminating particular foods will stop the binge or overeating. Some might attend Overeaters Anonymous, but with any of these solutions, likely the binge or overeating continues and then the individual blames themselves or judges themselves as a failure. And that is related to the fact that people don't fully understand that binge eating disorder is a mental health condition and behaviors are the outcome of that complex array of different variables. Also, I think there is that sense of shame that people have. So people who experience binge eating behaviors frequently are keeping that a secret. They aren't forthcoming about that. They do feel shame and thinking they need to be able to get control of things. And lastly, specialized support's really limited and mixed diagnosis treatment settings can be intimidating um, or cannot feel as relevant to the individual living with binge eating. Absolutely. And I'm going to add in another complexity uh, for people, particularly who, who struggle with binge eating, we know a lot of people end up coming to the Emily program or to Veritas Collaborative because a provider in the a healthcare provider in their life has said, Hey, I think this might be an eating disorder or clearly it is, and you need to get help and here's help. What other factors are part of that challenge for people who might be struggling with binge eating disorder in their relationship with healthcare providers who might be an important part of them getting to specialized care? Tell us a little bit about that healthcare dynamic. Hmm. So that's a complex question, actually. Uh, I think the Reality that a higher percentage of people living with binge eating disorder are in higher body weights. And the reason for that, I do also have to say, oftentimes has to do with the fact that imagine a person who's living in a biologically higher weight body. So their body is just biologically higher weighted. And now they're living in a culture that is um, really informed by the vilification of particular body sizes and idealization of other body sizes. And an individual's in a higher weight body experience marginalization and ostracization and stigma. And unfortunately, they experience that in healthcare settings rather frequently. And for that reason, some might actually avoid healthcare settings. And so they may not have a close relationship with a primary care physician or with medical providers. And so in one way, the individuals might not be accessing medical care or might not be receiving support on the medical side. So those referrals may or may not happen. But on the other side, sometimes what happens in that same kind of falling under the same umbrella as white stigma is the approach is you need to do something about your weight. There isn't necessarily questions about tell me about your relationship with food or tell me about what's happening for you from a you know self care standpoint or a self management standpoint 
but instead we're noticing your weight is, is elevated and you need to attend to that. So unfortunately, um, the referrals sometimes aren't made because we think there's a complication in your relationship with food or we think there's a challenge in your relationship with food, but instead um, coming at it from that direction, which is really unhelpful and problematic. Uh, but we do have folks presenting for services that would like to address weight instead of their relationship with food overall. I don't know that that answered the question, but it brought in just another component. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a, it's a complex question, right? That, that there's so much weight stigma and judgment in our world for, for everybody and somebody struggling with a, an illness hallmarked by overeating mm-hmm. is a place that's really a challenge sometimes for providers to speak to without invoking that, that weight stigma and shame. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that that's part of what you thought a lot about in designing this program. So tell us a little bit about like, why would we have a standalone treatment program for people struggling with with binge eating why don't we why why did we think this was a good idea tell us more about that <laughs> sure i think it's a great question um so when folks with binge eating disorder or a primary pattern of binge eating present for services in a mixed diagnosis setting so when i say mixed diagnosis setting i just mean Uh, In eating disorder treatment, oftentimes we might have a milieu or a group or program that's comprised of folks with anorexia, with bulimia, with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So it's a mixed diagnosis setting. And for people with a pattern of binge eating, they may experience that, that, that mixed diagnosis setting as a place where they don't feel at liberty to speak freely about their experience. We received feedback from folks um, that at our mealtime experience, for example, they felt urges to eat, you know, beyond what was on their plate. They felt urges to, you know, consume more. And they were sitting next to somebody that was feeling, you know, really averse to taking another bite or was tearful about, you know, having to eat more. And so that experience was very different. And the internal judgment that occurs with regards to those urges to eat more prevented them, you know, from speaking out loud about it. Also, we heard feedback and um, observed that these individuals sometimes felt ostracized or different or othered because of their experience being more unique in that mixed diagnosis setting, which unfortunately can exacerbate that sense of shame. We would hear people dealing with a restrictive eating disorder, for example, expressing concern about fear of weight gain, fear of being in a higher weight body. And then our individuals that are living in higher weight bodies would say, oh my gosh, that person's afraid of looking like me. So it just didn't feel like a safe environment for those individuals. um, And that's what we were hearing from them. So a standalone program kind of allows for uh, safety that offers a non-stigmatizing environment. It allows for shared learning because you can speak a little bit more openly about what your experience is because the people in your group are experiencing something similar. I think there's reassurance that people aren't alone in their struggle. And I think it can be standalone programs can be tailored more for the individual that's struggling with binge eating disorder or binge eating behaviors. Yeah. I want to highlight something you just said, which I think is so critical that people can realize they're not alone, 
right? How, I mean, you and I have been doing eating disorder work for a really long time. That I think above maybe anything else that I've heard clients say, or people struggling with eating disorders say is that I, I thought I was alone in this. I didn't think anybody would understand me. And so to have people in this program be able to say, I feel like I have this sort of relatively unique set of needs and I also feel alone mm-hmm. to not feel alone. What a beautiful thing. It's yeah. amazing. And I think especially with that secrecy component, you know, because it isn't something that we readily talk about if we're struggling with binge eating behaviors, you know, we might hear people joke about it, you know, but it's not something that they, you know, approach somebody about and say, oh my gosh, I'm really struggling with overeating. I'm really struggling with an inability to stop once I start. It's just not talked about in ways that allow for vulnerability. And so I think there isn't knowledge that people aren't alone, that what did I say at the beginning? 2.5 million Americans. I mean, that's a lot of individuals, but because it's not talked about, people don't know. And so to be able to talk more openly about it and realize that, you know, there is, there are other people, you know, that are experiencing something similar. Absolutely. So, so let's, you know, without further ado, let's talk about care. Tell us about this virtual care IOP program. Uh, How did it come to be? What does care mean? Why did, why is it called that? Tell us all about it. Sure. So CARE IOP, CARE stands for Cultivating Awareness and Resilience with Eating, Experience, and Emotions. We couldn't decide on an E, so we can use all three of those E's, or you can pick your favorite. Jillian, you know that we spent a long time figuring out the name. I think the figuring out the name plagued me for months months. It was at the back of my mind, just trying to figure out something that would really encompass what we do. And so when we came across CARE and the acronym for CARE, it just really fit. Um, And for anybody that's listening that doesn't know, IOP is Intensive Outpatient Programming. So um, this is a program that we discussed based on feedback from clients with binge eating disorder who had participated in the mixed diagnosis milieus. And based on that feedback, we kind of recognized this opportunity or this need that was out there in the eating disorder world and in the treatment world. And so what we did is came together and Jillian, you are part of this with me and we researched and we surveyed former clients to inform the curriculum that we developed. And that curriculum was developed and is rooted in weight inclusivity and self-compassion and offers just components supportive of individuals overcoming binge eating behaviors. So it's really specifically tailored and um, I I'm very enthusiastic talking about it, but developing and creating the program really was this collaborative effort of, you know, different thought leaders with the EMILY program, as well as, and Veritas Collaborative, of course, as well as um, folks in the community and different individuals that, you know, really know about binge eating disorder and the treatment of folks who are living with it. Absolutely. I think that's one of my favorite things about the development of this program, right? That we were able to ask people struggling with the illness and and also people who had experienced with some of our services previously that that listening was just so key to understanding what we should do next. And so I, I think that that's, you know, I think we get asked uh, to listen a lot and I'm really proud that we were able to listen deeply and create something that was very responsive to what people themselves who struggle with this illness said here's what you should do. And I was also impressed at the um, 
in addition to the depth and, and sort of beauty of, of what they shared with us, um, kind of the clarity of perspective that really led to help us design those program components. So tell us tell us a little bit more about those key components, the, the meals and the skill groups and the therapy groups. How um, What do those look like? How are those uniquely tailored to somebody struggling with binge eating? Sure. So we'll first start with meals. Um, so meals and meal plans, and I'll say before I go into this that Again, for anybody listening, within our IOP program, so within CARE, we participate in a therapeutic supported meal each night of programming. So programming is four days per week. Um, and I just said night, but it doesn't have to be at nighttime. It's four days per week. So um, whatever hours the program is, there's a therapeutic supported meal during that time. And the therapeutic supported meal is staffed by a dietitian and a therapist. And individuals bring their plated meal. Um, and we haven't talked yet, Jillian, that this program is virtual, um, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But they bring their meal to um, the table or to the screen and receive support during that meal. And what's unique about CARE is one, our meal plans. So in our mixed diagnosis settings, oftentimes we are doing exchange-based meal plans and our dietitians are recommending, you know, different exchanges to individuals to ensure that they're plating adequately and ensuring that they get their dietary needs met. Jillian, you could speak a lot more to that than I. Um, but within CARE, we actually focus more on increasing regularity, adequacy and variety. And so for our individuals with binge eating behaviors, what I haven't said yet is even though it's not part of the diagnostic criteria, many people with binge eating behaviors do engage in a pattern of restriction too. So they actually might restrict their intake significantly, which sometimes is one of the factors that activates the overeating experiences. So one of the first things we focus on is increasing regularity. We want people achieving their three meals in a day. We want people having snacks between their meals to achieve that regularity. Um, and so that's the first thing that we're focusing on is getting our three meals, getting our three snacks, ideally not allowing more than three to four hours in between those eating experiences. During our meal times, we do obviously ask for an adequately plated meal. And then sometimes we also do challenge meals, probably on a weekly basis, we do challenge meals. And those challenge meals are oftentimes identified by the group as far as what would be beneficial for them. So that may be you know, um, there's several individuals in the group that have been avoiding a particular food. Maybe it's pizza. And so because we want to normalize all foods and we want to legalize all foods, maybe we're going to do a pizza as challenge meals. So everybody would get pizza for that night, or maybe we'll do frozen meals, or maybe we'll do dessert first. So we're able to, you know, again, tailor these challenge meals to identify, to inform kind of what the people in the group are needing. Along with that, so you asked about the meals, then we've got our skills groups. Um, we also do um, skills groups twice a week within our program. So DBT skills and CBT skills, both of which have demonstrated efficacy with binge eating and helping people acquire strategies for managing internal experiences, strategies for coping with different things that they encounter. Because again, when we think about the symptoms, quote unquote, or binge eating as, you know, a something that serves a function, oftentimes we think of it as a coping strategy in and of itself. 
And so if we can help folks acquire skills and strategies for managing differently, um, then we're helping them identify different methods for managing what's showing up. And one of the special things about the curriculum, my favorite part of the curriculum, is a group we call Relationship with self Body. And that group is one that's a little bit more on the education side, but also provides an opportunity for processing. And it's in that group that we talk about weight stigma, internalized weight stigma, self-compassion, exposure with response prevention, diet culture, relationship with food, relationship with body, relationship with movement. Um, there's a lot of exploration that occurs in that group. And I think a lot of insight that's gained pertaining to what activates binge eating behaviors and maintains those behaviors as well. And two more aspects, we have our nutrition education um, and in our nutrition education groups, which our dietitians lead, that's when we're talking with clients about intuitive eating. What is intuitive eating? What are the components of intuitive eating? We educate about the principles of health at every size. We educate about the consequences of intentional weight loss dieting, of which there are many. Uh, we educate about attuned movement. What is that? What does that mean to find joy in movement? And we educate about the binge restrict pendulum, which, as I mentioned, that idea of like folks restricting their intake, we discuss how that can act as a pendulum moving into binge eating behaviors um, or what we call deprivation backlash. And then we also talk about mental restriction, which is kind of a new concept for folks. This idea that the way we think about our food or the energy we put into all those diet rules that people strive to follow actually can exacerbate binge eating behaviors as well. And lastly, uh, we do yoga. So once a week, we actually do yoga, which is gentle movement with the intention of increasing awareness of body, attunement with body. I've heard one of our yoga instructors talk about our yoga as a work in, not a work out. And so it's really a focus on that reconnecting with body, which so many folks have disconnected from. Again, one question resulted in a lot of words. <laughs> It's such a cool program, though. It's so, it's so fun to hear you describe it, having having been really close to the development of it. It just is so beautiful to hear it described in its in its fullness. It does strike me that one of the things we didn't say yet that that we probably should is like, how long does that take in a week? Tell us a little bit about the like the amount of time that Care IOP client would be involved in Care IOP during a week. Yeah, great question. Um, so similar to. Veritas Collaborative or the Emily programs, other IOPs. It is four days a week, three hours per day. And then outside of those three hours, there's also an hour long therapy appointment and a 30 minute dietitian appointment. And so in total, it's 13 and a half hours per week that we're asking clients to commit because we really are doing a lot of different things. And the curriculum, you know, that pairs with all of the, what I just talked about comes in a lovely, you know, large <laughs> um, curriculum book that we send out to clients so they're able to, you know, see the information. And in whatever additional time they want to put in, there are worksheets to be done and ways to apply the material or ways to apply what's being learned um, so that they can really develop the strategies that they're acquiring. That's awesome. One of the ways that I often describe 
IOP to people who don't know much about what eating disorder treatment looks like. It's, you know, IOP is a little bit like a part-time job, right? Mm -hmm. Like 13 and a half hours a week plus, plus homework. So you're looking at, you know, 15, 16 hours a week as a part-time job, just to frame it as the kind of commitment that this is uh, to a, to, to really self-care and, and really taking care of self. Um, How long do people typically stay in care IOP in terms of weeks? So with care IOP, what was unique to find is the length of stay is oftentimes a little bit longer than our mixed diagnosis milieus or than our quote unquote standard programs. And so it is typically around eight to 10 weeks. And I think the reason that it is the lengths of stay are a little bit longer is one, a lot of individuals have not yet received any form of treatment before. So this is the first time that they're addressing their relationship with food. And if you think about our relationship with food, it's been developing, you know, since we were wee little things. And so there's a lot to unpack. And oftentimes so many people have really internalized diet culture messages and rules. There's so much internalized weight stigma, and there's a lot to lean into therapeutically when it comes to those things and redeveloping our relationship with food and discovering food freedom and unconditional permission to eat, um, you know, again, can take a little bit of time. And I will say, I, I'm biased, of course, but I think it's worth it. I think our clients have found it to be worth it because what we don't think about when folks are feeling hesitant to commit that much time is how much time and energy the eating disorder takes. So when we're looking at 13 and a half hours, a lot of people I think are saying, oh, geez, I don't have time for that. But then we ask, well, what percentage of the day are you preoccupied with food, weight, shape? And oftentimes that's greater than 70% of the day. People are thinking about eating or their body or what they have eaten, what they will eat. You know, it It's all consuming. And so it feels worth it to invest some time in a program that's going to help eradicate that, that's going to help decrease that 70% down to less than 20%, you know, to a normative amount that's necessary just for meal planning and, you know, grocery shopping and things of that nature. So while it sounds like a lot, I think it is necessary to regain and reclaim the time that we need in our lives that the eating disorder has been robbing us of. Yeah, it does. As you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, since our uh, many of our clients, not all, but many of our clients come to us, as you were saying, after struggling with this for quite a long time, mm-hmm. and it's it's taking up so much of their day, so much of their mental energy that it feels like, wow, if you can change that way of experiencing the world in eight to 10 weeks with a, with a, you know, the equivalent of a part-time job, that's amazing. Like that's really the the beauty of, I think, treatment, particularly for binge eating disorder, when you look at the literature that that people with binge eating disorder in the in the studies that have been done show really strong response to the treatments that that are out there. And so it just sounds like a great, a great idea, right? <laughs> to take this this time to invest in yourself and to take that time away from the eating disorder and give it back to 
to you is just lovely. I I know that there's uh, one of the unique pieces of of KRIOP is that it's only offered in the virtual format. And so I wonder if you can speak to what are the advantages to to virtual format of KRIOP, which really is when it boils down to it, what are the advantages to getting treatment at home in the space that you're in, that you're experiencing this illness in? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So we did decide that Care IOP would remain virtual. So it's provided over telehealth. And what we love about it is exactly what you just said, you know, from the comfort of your own home. So number one, it's accessible from anywhere. Um, And that can be, you know, from an office, you know, because somebody just got off work or from somebody's home, but also anywhere in the state, the program's offered. So what's been neat about that is the capacity we have to reach people in rural communities or in areas that wouldn't otherwise be able to access care or they'd have to drive a distance in order to access treatment. And the virtual format is more convenient. So we do have people that, you know, aren't necessarily able to take time out of work. And so they might do their individual therapy appointment on their on their lunch from work. You know, they go into a private space or they close their door and they're able to do, you know, their therapeutic hour, you know, from the office. Right? I've led groups where people are still at their office because we have programs that start at 5 p.m. So they get off work and they log in. So there's a convenience factor to that. But then I think more relevant is probably when people are in their own space or in their own homes, I think there's a translatability, it's not a word, um, but this ability that folks have to, they're preparing their meals in their own space. They're plating their food in their own space. They're eating their own their food in their own space. And as a result, I think there's this capacity that they develop that might be a little bit different than if they were to come on site to one of our kitchens where they're eating their meals, because it's different. I remember when we were in person, we would have people that had a therapeutic supported meal at our site. And on the drive home, they would actually stop at a grocery or stop at fast food and actually engage in binge eating when they got home. And so with this capacity to be in their own space, not only are they eating their meal in their own space, but then they have the exposure of continuing to be in their own space after programming and kind of putting to use the skills that have been acquired and recognizing what's showing up for them as they remain there. And there's just this, again, translatability that can be really um, effective. It's also been really nice to have people in their own kitchens where they have access to their own food because there's an ability to maybe achieve satisfaction that we might not otherwise have. I was leading a group one night um, and we were in a meal and one client said, I'm not feeling satisfied. And we said, well, what, what do you sense would be satisfying? What would help you achieve satisfaction? She said, you know, I, ice cream, I think. And we said, do you have any ice cream? She said, yeah, I've got some in the freezer. So we said, well, what would it be like to plate a little bit of ice cream? We're going to be really mindful about eating that, you know, and mindful of the textures and flavors and, you know, and the satisfaction level. So she plated some ice cream. She took a couple bites and said, I think I'm satisfied. And it was great because again, if we were in person, we'd have kind of a limited variety of foods, but when you're in your own space, And then lastly, with binge eating disorder, I think there's exposure that goes into having variety in your home, having leftovers in your home, having a stocked kitchen. So many people with binge eating behaviors 
prefer to keep their kitchen void of particular foods or, you know, keep those foods off limits to avoid activating a binge episode. And because they have to stock their kitchen and have that variety available for purposes of programming, it provides that opportunity to, you know, develop the ability to be around those foods and habituate those foods and normalize being in in the presence, um, you know, of the foods that they would naturally try and avoid. It sounds so beautiful in terms of the way that being in your home and being in this program can help really target that shame element that you talked about earlier that that is uh, in some ways a bit disproportionately unique in this population that people get to practice in their home where they have some comfort Mm -hmm. and they get to practice with a group in their home when they have some comfort and everyone's in that same sort of maybe comfortable space. I'm really curious as it relates to that space, uh, what clients have said about the impact of of the other people in their space, right? That these are people who have other people in their houses or their homes or their spaces, oftentimes their family, whoever they live with, so on and so forth. What uh, what key takeaways have clients had in relation to how maybe their loved ones see them show up differently or see the progress they make in this program? Absolutely. I'll share with you some feedback that we've received. And on the topic of loved ones, I will also say one of the things that we recently introduced in Care IOP because we saw it being relevant is a community of support group that we're offering to the people that are supporting folks that are participating in programming. So that might be people that they're living with, it might be parental figures, it might be partners, it might be loved ones that are striving to support them and don't necessarily know how or or don't necessarily understand the things that are being learned in care. So we did recently introduce this community of support group that happens monthly and is invitation only for the individual support people. And during that, we provide education about our food philosophy, about our approach, about terms that we use that maybe are unfamiliar or that wouldn't otherwise be known. So that is a neat way that we educate the people that are striving to support those that are going through program and maybe making some changes in their life. And then the feedback we've gotten from people and knowing you would ask that question, I actually looked up some and I, I have a couple of quotes that are just fun to share. Um, so one of one of our clients that had completed programming um, said, I'm able to have food, including binge foods and snacks in the house for the first time without feeling anxious or out of control. So I think that element of legalizing all foods is a novel concept. Many people with binge eating behaviors do think, you know, like I said at the beginning, the next diet is going to be the solution. Or if they eliminate particular foods, it's going to be the the thing that remedies their behaviors. But what we actually know is that by making certain foods off limits, it makes them all the more tempting, you know, and all the more appealing, and they actually become binge foods. And so if we can legalize all foods, we create that peaceful relationship with food that we're striving to facilitate and that we're um, striving to help clients experience. 
Another one that we got and another quote, um, this person said, I went to the grocery store for the first time in my life without feeling like an anxious wreck. Um, and so that idea of like disempowering the eating disorder, you know, allowing these folks to go to the grocery store. I mean, and this person said in my entire life. So imagining just every time they went to the grocery store, feeling like a, as they said, anxious wreck, that sounds terrible. I mean, we have to go to the grocery store on the regular. So it's neat to hear people saying like that the eating disorder has been disempowered. It's no longer calling the shots or activating anxiety. It's no longer dominating their experience. So that's neat. One more, this person said, this program is amazing. And the group aspect was something I needed, but didn't know I needed. It's so helpful to know I'm not alone in this. So again, there's that beauty of knowing and feeling validated that we're not alone in our experience, that other people experience something similar. And there's something so validating and that can inform self-compassion in that regard. And we've also heard clients say that learning about overall health and learning about diet culture has been really beneficial because it just illuminates something or shines the light on something um, that is has been contributing to their experience. Um, because diet culture is kind of the water in which we swim. And until we shine a light on it, it's it's hard to recognize it and its impact. Absolutely. It makes me think of all these strands of thoughts coming together, see if I can weave it into a, a sentence that makes sense that, you know, we think about the data element that, that there's so many people, as you said, so many people struggling with binge eating and binge eating disorder and, and feel alone. We know that diet culture is so impactful and you're right. It's sort of the water that we swim in, particularly for people who are likely to be struggling with binge eating disorder. We also know from, from the data that if you take any sort of diet or weight loss program, up to 40% of people who are pursuing that program are very likely struggling with binge eating disorder. So I think about it from like providers, from, from family members or friends, how can we be thinking about this differently when we're listening to a, to a patient of ours, if we're a provider or listening to a loved one of ours, if we're a friend or family member, hearing somebody talking about dieting and weight loss and and having uh, messages given to them about changing their weight or changing their bodies, how could we help ourselves as those providers or, or family or friends to be thinking about binge eating in a different way, thinking about getting support and help in a different way and, and encouraging folks to get help? I think that somewhere in that answer has got to be the you're not alone factor. Mm -hmm. Like lots of people feel this way. So, so if you are, you know, put yourself in the, in the shoes of somebody who's a provider who sees folks in a, in a general medical setting that deals with a lot of these messages about weight and weight stigma and all of that, what kinds of recommendations do you have for those providers or a family or friend who might be concerned about somebody? How do we, how do we approach someone with this? Like, Hey, I think maybe you might need mm -hmm. How did that conversation go. Yeah, absolutely. So I will answer that latter part, kind of how does that conversation go? But first I will say, I think it's so relevant, basically just to say dieting, restricting, limiting one's intake, putting rules on one's intake. So those rules being external is going to likely exacerbate 
the binge eating. So while somebody might, you know, have quote unquote success initially, over time, um, that rigidity and the rule bound thinking oftentimes exacerbates things. So when that is the recommendation, you know, I think having knowledge that that's actually going to make things worse. You know, it's like if we were doing some wound care and what we were putting in the wound was actually making it that much worse, we would stop using that particular product. Um, and in the same way with binge eating disorder, binge eating behaviors, you know, a, a diet is actually going to just exacerbate things. It's just going to make it worse. But I think for loved ones, you know, um, one, I, I, discourage uh, making recommendations about how to change one's eating or, you know, how to modify one's eating. And if you are concerned about a loved one, I think being able to ask yourself, you know, what is it that has you believing that binge eating might be happening? What have you observed? What has been disclosed? Educating yourself on binge eating disorder and depending on your relationship, maybe looking at support services available in your or their area. And if you do feel, you know, pretty confident this is happening, you can describe with facts to the individual what you've observed, why this is causing concern, because we know that binge eating behaviors can cause impairment, lots of different um, life domains. We know that there is that experience of self-criticism and shame. It can contribute to hopelessness or depression. You know, so I think it's it's valid that that concern is there. And I think being able to talk with the individual about, again, what what you've observed with facts um, and expressing concern, validating that it is hard. It's not a simple solution. It's not something that's readily, you know, just taken care of um, with a with a quick fix. Um, and asking the individual, how how could I help? What what are some ways that I might support you or what might be beneficial from me? And remembering that binge eating disorder, binge eating behaviors are nobody's fault. It wasn't caused by any one particular thing and it, it's not easy to overcome. So I think being able to just hold a lot of compassion as you know, you're know you interacting or engaging with somebody or as you approach them in general. That was so well said. And I, you know, I love a good analogy. So I love your analogy of putting on a wound, this, this thing that's just going to make it worse. Like that is so, so spot on, right? We're like, oh, I have a cut on my finger. So let me just rub in some stuff that's going to make it more inflamed and worse and not heal. But we do it all the time with diet culture. Like, oh, I'm really struggling with, with diets and weight stigma and my experience. I don't know. How about a diet? Like, it's the worst right? thing mm -hmm. to do in that, in that scenario. So I love that. Like, why would you put a, you know, cream on that wound that is just going to make it worse. That's right. not the option. I love that image. Mm -hmm. So Stacy, let's end on a, on a hopeful note. What sort of guidance or support would you give people who, you know, somebody's listening right now, they're struggling with binge eating. They're like, oh, that kind of sounds like it might be helpful for me. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. Maybe that works for other people. I'm not sure it could work for me. What would you tell that person? Number one, and I said this when I was talking about, you know, what you could say to someone, your support, but number one, for the individual living with a pattern of binge eating, it isn't your fault. You know, it, it isn't, you are not to blame. If you've tried hundreds of diets and each of them has failed, that's the, 
diet failing, you know, 95 to 98% of diets fail. So it isn't, it isn't your fault. Um, and I think that's just so important to remember. It is that complex interplay of biological, psychological, and environmental factors coming together in a perfect to imperfect storm. If binge eating is happening, it's serving a function. It's an adaptive response to something. And you might not be yet aware of what combination of things is activating the binge eating, but as much as possible, offer yourself the same compassion that you would a friend or a loved one. That self-compassion, self-kindness is so important and can counteract that self-criticism or self-judgment that you might be experiencing. And also help and support are available and recovery is possible. And by recovery, I mean a peaceful relationship with food and body, like a peaceful relationship with our body, food freedom, a felt sense of confidence, a participatory life in which there isn't that preoccupation with food or body shape size. That's beautiful. Stacy. thank you so much for coming on today and telling us about Care IOP. Certainly if people are interested in learning more about Care IOP, they can look on the EMILY program or the Veritas Collaborative website. There's a, a, a beautiful set of information there. And uh, just know that the the wisdom and compassion that, that Stacy embodies is behind that program. So thank you so much, Stacy. Thank you. It's been an honor. Absolutely. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. 